Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, my guest is Dr. Wayne Grudem. Wayne is Research Professor of Systematic Theology and Biblical Studies at Phoenix Seminary. He is the founder of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He's a dear friend of mine, and he has recently authored the book, the massive book, Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. Wayne, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Good to be with you, Owen. You have written uh, a follow-up text, really, I think we can say that, to your, your tome on systematic theology, which has sold hundreds of thousands of copies all over the world. Christian ethics, as I understand it, is something uh, of, a, of a paired book to that first project. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, it is similar to systematic theology in the layout, uh, the format, uh, similar in the approach in that I do have questions for personal application. I have a hymn with each chapter. Um, and it is a survey of the topics covered. First, The first book was Systematic Theology. Theological topics such as the Trinity or justification or the deity of Christ or the resurrection or the atonement. Um, but this book deals with um, ethical topics, capital punishment, um, just war, uh, euthanasia, uh, divorce, and remarriage, um, abortion, um, lying and telling the truth, um, stewardship of money, wealth and poverty, those things that have to do with living the Christian life. How does God want us to act, and what uh, attitudes and character traits does he want us to discover in the Christian life and to grow in? That's that's lovely, and that proceeds from doctrine. Doctrine creates, I think we can both say, doctrine creates a certain life. Theology creates spirituality. You say early on, very early on, that this book contains a challenge, and you say this, I'm concerned that teaching about ethics has been neglected in many evangelical churches today. That's a strong statement. Why do you think it has been neglected in many churches? Well, I think it's easy to uh, avoid talking about ethical topics, uh, partly because the issues seem complex, uh, partly because uh, pastors don't want to be accused of sounding legalistic, and um, partly mm-hmm. because the surrounding non-Christian culture is hostile to Christian moral values. And so anybody who starts to teach about biblical ethics will likely be criticized by unbelievers. So the book is a challenge for, uh, for pastors and Bible study teachers small group leaders begin working through these topics on Christian ethics because it's such an important question. How does, how does the Bible teach us about what God wants us to do, to live, live in a way that's faithful to Him in our daily lives? Some will... And it, it challenges yeah. Christians today uh, that we should be living lives of, of personal holiness, lives that will be mm-hmm. really different from the, those in the culture that surrounds us not being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, like Paul says in in Romans 12. Yeah, I agree with that. Some would say in response that uh, it's it's hard to take ethical positions. Um, The younger generation in particular, I think, has been influenced by a postmodern context where there's much less of a focus on authority and, you know, truth that is totally true, true truth, as Schaefer called it, 
What would you say to somebody who is looking at your book and says, you know, thanks for this, good effort in (laughs) searching out the Bible, but I'm not so sure that I can come to these kind of hard and fast positions on tough ethical issues? What would you say to them? Well, people have a right to reach their own conclusions. What I would say, though, is uh, at least consider the arguments in the book. The subtitle is An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. And in many cases, I have um, given my own position, but I've explained and quoted from other authors who take different positions. For instance, on the issue of lying and telling the truth, I, I take the position, once we define a lie as affirming in words or in speech or writing, affirming in speech or writing something we believe to be false, then I think the Bible never wants us to tell a lie under any circumstances at all, uh, whatever. Mm. Now, in doing that, I, um, I quote from three friends who are also ethics professors and who have written major ethics textbooks. textbooks uh, John Frame, who was my own ethics professor at Westminster Seminary, John Feinberg, uh, whom I taught with at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois for 20 years, and Norm Geisler, whom I've known for many years. Uh, they all have respected textbooks. They all say there are times when it's right to tell a lie to save human life, for instance. And I quote them, I interact with them, I disagree with them. But at least the other side's arguments are laid out clearly so that readers can see what the different positions are and come to their own conclusions. That's far better than having no conclusion at all or just being confused. Yeah, what would you say to somebody who places more stock in doubt and even seems to believe that doubting is part of the Christian faith? How would you counter such a view today? Well, it's a challenge for Christian growth. Um, Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1 that he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And and the result will be that they will live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Oh, and that's the kind of life I want to live. I want to live Mm. a life Mm. fully pleasing to God. And that's a process. We grow in Christian maturity through our lives, uh, but we shouldn't abandon abandon the path of Spiritual growth, that's what, um, that's what God wants us to do for our entire life. So this book is, I, I hope, a, a real a challenge, but also an encouragement to people that they can grow in, in their daily decision-making, mm-hmm. so as more and more each day to, to live a life that is, as Colossians 1 says, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Amen. You talk in your... Uh early notes about the book, about your wife, Margaret, uh, bringing meals into your study as you were writing. Uh, I and others who know you personally as a, as a dear friend know you to be a very disciplined man when it comes to the actual writing of, of the text, of a text. So I want to just uh, jump out of our discussion of broader theological and ethical matters and ask you for just a minute about how it is that you write your books. You are now associated with three major projects, systematic theology, politics, and the Bible, and Christian ethics. In addition, you have written several very large books on complementarity and other doctrines, but I just want to focus on these three in particular, systematic theology, politics, and the Bible, and Christian ethics. How is it, 
as a theologian that you set out to tackle such a massive project? I think a lot of people, in other words, would be scared even to try and and draft a proposal for such a book. How do you how do you do this, Wayne? Well, no, um, oh, and I've been I've been teaching uh, four years at the college and seminary level, and uh, twenty thirty seven years at the four years at the college level and 37 years at the seminary level. So I've got 41 years worth of lecture notes. Mm. And I think God has given me a, a heart and a mind of curiosity that I, 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 want to, I want to research and then teach on topics that are of interest to people. If people uh, are puzzled about um, what to do about in vitro fertilization, and I want to search out biblical teachings that relate to that new modern question and see if we can... And, and then there's a conviction that God has written his word as a, as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. He's written it as a guide to our daily living uh, so that even, uh, as the Psalms say, uh, the simple are made wise by it. And so I believe that when we search God's word for answers to real-life problems, we will often find that he gives us extremely helpful guidance in his word. And and I think from early childhood, God gave me a, a mind of curiosity, wondering if we put the whole Bible together on a certain topic, what are the conclusions we should come to? What does God want us to believe? How, how does he want us to act? So the process is really a process of 41 years of preparing lectures and teaching electives on various topics on business ethics, on biblical manhood and womanhood, on mm. uh, poverty and solutions to poverty in poor nations, on uh, questions related to the environment, on uh, questions related to life and death, capital punishment, war, self-defense, um, many questions relating to civil government, and I wrote a book, as you said, on politics according to the Bible, and so what are the questions relating to obedience to government and honoring government and sometimes seeking to change government. It, it's been a, pro, a lifelong process, Owen, of teaching on these topics and then taking those outlines and working in more detail uh, to get them into paragraphs and um, sentences and paragraphs and sections of chapters and then chapters and then eventually a whole book. Mm. So in terms of your, your daily process... Uh, yeah. when, when are you getting into your study? Uh, I know that you, I think, regularly have, uh, I think I have this correct, the spring semester off, and so you have a number of months per year, perhaps eight per year, where you're focusing on writing. What does your writing process look like? What time are you in the study? How long are you there for? Do you have a daily word goal? What does that look like? Well, uh, first we have to speak truthfully when we're talking about truth, so it, it's the fall term that I have off. Fall term. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I violated Christian ethics there. Excuse me. I lied. Uh, there's small moral, there's minimal, minimal moral culpability for <laughs> unintentionally affirming a falsehood. <laughs> it's, good, it's good to know. Uh, but, they, but uh, well, I don't want to say it's totally blameless. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, oh, and uh, I'm joking. Well, I know. Let me get back to the topic. Yeah. Uh, routine is. Um, Get up in the morning, uh, read read the Bible. I'm now reading a chapter in the Old Testament, a chapter in the New Testament each day. Mm. Spend some time in prayer, and uh, 
then um, I think you're aware that I have Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been nearly three years ago that I received the diagnosis. And as a result of that, to keep the uh, symptoms minimal, uh, my doctor says it's important that I do some physical exercise each day. So Hmm. um, I either run, and I've had a small foot injury recently, so I've been riding an exercise bike instead of that for uh, 30 or 35 minutes. Eat breakfast, spend some time with Margaret, um, in reading a devotional work and praying together, hmm. and then get to work. Um, and I think part of the reason that I've been able to finish these uh, larger books has been uh, the ability to say no to many other things. Um, it, 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 people think that I'm disciplined. I, I always think of myself as being very slow in getting chapters done, getting work done. But I um, I keep at it, and eventually there are results. Um, mm-hmm. Also, and there's been a blessing here in the Phoenix area, I say in the front of my book, two things happened. Um, a good friend, C.J. Mahaney, said to me about 10 years ago, it was actually after a, a Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood board meeting, mm. he said, Wayne, how could we get you to write more? And I said... Um, well, if I didn't have to teach as much, I could write more. And he said, well, that's easy. We can work that out. And he, uh, he took the initiative and raised funding for me to teach on a half-year basis for the first three years. And uh, that was when I was working on the ESV, editing the ESV Study Bible. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I went to my administration, and they approved of the plan for me to teach half-time at half-salary. But then CJ raised that funding for me to uh, be able to make up that salary difference so that I could have the free time. And that was a tremendous blessing. Mm-hmm. And then there are some other... Uh, there's a, a group of business people here, businessmen in the Phoenix area, that um, took up the slack after that and provided financial assistance for me to continue that half-time schedule for another several years. And so I just have felt a tremendous responsibility to use the time wisely because people were giving of their own money to enable me to get this writing project done. So um, so after the ESV Study Bible, it came out in 2008. Then there was this book, Politics According to the Bible, that came out in 2010. Um, and uh, The Poverty of Nations, A Sustainable Solution, came out in 2013. Um, I had a book on the what's called Free Grace Theology, and I, it's a little book called Five Ways It Diminishes the Gospel. I think that came out in 2015, maybe. Or, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to try to speak truthfully and say I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Minimal culpability here. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, uh, what am I forgetting? Uh, Oh, I co-edited a book called Theistic Evolution, Theistic Evolution, a Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. Co-edited that with J.P. Moreland, Stephen Meyer, Ann Gager, Chris Shaw, and that's a crossway book. And then uh, this book, uh, Christian Ethics, an Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. So all that has happened as a result of uh, some generous people in God's kingdom um, providing 
the opportunity for me to work at this full time uh, during the uh, during this fall term and during the summer. Uh, so it's been a tremendous blessing. That's really quite a story uh, when you think about it, um, and uh, shows you know evidence of God's providence and kindness in your life. Uh, that's really I'm, it's amazing. It's really beautiful. Oh, I'm just so grateful. Mm. So okay, I'm not I'm not trying to be a dogged journalist here, but uh, as a fellow writing theologian, I just want to know, and I know a bunch of young will be and would be theologians are listening. Do you have a daily word target that you put before you, or is it a you know I remember hearing that the Never. Athe- okay, I I remember hearing that the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell would set his his watch for an hour and he would write one hour per day. And that was it. You know, whatever he, whatever he had, that's what he that's what he had. Do you have something uh, like that, or what? What's your uh, mentality there, Wayne? Well, it's just um, continue. I don't try to meet a deadline or a schedule in um, how quickly I complete each chapter. I see. Um, I'm now revising my book, Systematic Theology, for a second edition. Mm. And I was working on the atonement chapter uh, on um, Friday afternoon, and when the end of the workday came, and Margaret and I had a commitment uh, in the evening, um, I uh, I had thought I'd get done with the atonement chapter and didn't finish it. And then Saturday was a busy day with Phoenix Seminary, a number of commitments, and then some time with Margaret. And so I'm back to the atonement chapter this morning, and... Uh, interacting with um, Steve Chalk in the United Kingdom and Joel mm. Green here in the U.S. who deny penal substitutionary atonement. Yes. And I thought it was going to f- be finished on Friday. Now I'm back this Monday morning, and I'm hoping to finish it this uh, morning. But I, I don't know, and I, I won't leave it until I'm satisfied that the topic is adequately covered. So, mm. uh, no, there's no... I, I keep a chart in front of me of what chapters I've done and what chapters I have yet to do. I see. Um, but I, I, uh, I find it hard to predict how long it'll take for each topic. I see. Okay. I, uh, yeah. As a result of the Parkinson's, I, I never was a very good typist. It was adequate. But um, my typing has been a little more difficult. So I use this dictation software called Naturally Speaking. Hmm. And so um, I speak the sentences instead of type them, but it it isn't as accurate as I would hope it would be, and so I, I have to correct the sentences by hand. Mm-hmm. But it it works quite well, and I'm I'm thankful for it. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that. That's very interesting. Um, I I don't know if I can say anything else. Oh, oh yeah, I do want to say one other thing. People say my writing is clear mm-hmm. um, and easy to understand. I spend an a huge amount of time getting an outline that uh-huh. makes sense. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll work and work and work and work at the wording of the outline, at the layout of the outline, and how one part flows to the next, and whether the order of topics and then the uh, order of subtopics and the reasoning of the subtopics makes sense to the reader. And the reader is, oh, um, I, I have thought that the audience is a first-year seminary class uh, with my parents sitting in the back row, and I wanted them to be able to understand. And uh, My dad went two years to college. My mom wasn't able to go to college. 
because her father had passed away. Hmm. And so uh, that was the audience for systematic theology. I think now I think of the audience as primarily um, a first-year seminary class in Christian ethics um, with um, members of my adult Sunday school class from from uh, Scottsdale Bible Church here in Arizona, where I taught for a number of years, uh, scattered throughout the audience. So educated Christian uh, re- adult readers is my audience. I think many times um, textbooks are written with other professors as the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's, there's room for those books, too. Uh, but they're more difficult for um, introductory courses and for ordinary Christian lay people to follow. And so it's just a question of audience. And I want to make, I want to be sure that I'm not using vocabulary that uh, is that will baffle people who are just uh, interested, uh, educated uh, Christian adults. Yes. Uh, unless I can explain the vocabulary and then, then go on, of course. Well, is that it, helpful? That's very helpful, yes. And it's been fascinating to for me to see how different uh, theologians do theology, the method we use in our theological construction. You're a Harvard undergrad, a Cambridge PhD, Westminster MDiv in the middle there. And so you have uh, elite training— and you have written at very high levels throughout your career. You have no trouble doing that, the kind of intra-scholar discussion. And yet, you have given a lot of your energy as a theologian to writing in such a way that normal Christian people, and also seminary students and pastors, let's be clear, I think there's a, a wide spectrum in who you're targeting from what I can tell, but you've given a lot of energy to really speaking to the church. Our, our motto here at Midwestern is for the church. And so I consider myself, in whatever, whatever tiny little gifting I have and calling I have, to, to focus on God's people. That doesn't, that doesn't carve scholarship out of things. I, I think I should be a scholar and should engage in academic discussions. Why, but why, I'm interested in why you have focused a lot of attention, again, though a a theologian who writes in conversation with other theologians, on educating God's people, the church. A couple of things have been influential. Um, I think I was, I think it was a senior in college when um, I read J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Mm. And I uh, I was deeply affected by it because I'd been dealing with liberalism on the Harvard campus. Huh. Uh, the expressions of uh, Protestant theology that were given in the in the college chapel that was still held, I think, daily at least once or twice weekly. Mm. Um, and so I was in, I was impressed with the uh, content of it, but. I also thought, if I could ever write as clearly and reason as logically and persuasively as Machen did in this book, I, I would be grateful to God. Uh, so that was one example. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing was, a number of years ago, um, President Reagan nominated Robert Bork for the Supreme Court, and he was probably the greatest jurist alive at that time, constitutional jurist. And he was rejected by the U.S. Senate almost entirely because uh, liberal politicians were afraid that he would vote 
to overturn Roe v. Wade hmm. on the abortion question. But Bork wrote a book about the legal culture in the United States called The Tempting of America. And in it, he said, he, he bemoaned the fact that in previous generations, highly advanced legal arguments could be read and understood by interested lay people across the country. And so they were part of the, uh, and so they became part of the entire political understanding of the nation. But he said in the last generation, technical legal arguments have become so specialized, so involved in their own unique vocabulary, so withdrawn from the reach of ordinary educated lay people that it's impossible for anybody not within the specific sub-discipline they're talking about to understand what is going on. Hmm. And he bemoaned the fact, and I thought, yes, that's exactly what has gone on at least in some cases, in theological discussion as well. And so uh, that was another push for me to try to write in a way that I dealt with the arguments in a very respectful and thoughtful way, but did so in vocabulary and with a careful reasoning process that would be accessible to interested laypersons. Hmm. Uh, even the well over 100 pages worth of study that I did on the meaning of the Greek word kephale, head, mm -hmm. um, which so was important. extensive research in ancient Greek literature. I think you will, if you read those three articles that I wrote on that word, mm -hmm. you'll find that um, if an interested layperson could read enough Greek script to read the word kephale, uh, he or she could follow the argument quite easily. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to... I'm continually trying to write in a way that says to my reader, uh, I respect your your thinking process, and I want I want you to be able to reason with me and understand where the argument is going. Another thing is in Ecclesiastes, it says, the mind of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure if that's in the end of Ecclesiastes or the, or the latter part of Proverbs, but... Uh, um, I, I want to be persuasive. Well, that's that's important, I think, for um, younger scholars and scholars to be to hear, because there one can think that really the only way to make theology count is to is to write in kind of complex jargon that lay people yep. actually cannot understand. It's not just that it happens to be difficult to understand. It's that you're actually writing in a way such that you're almost cloaking your words uh, for the guild. Um, right, because of using vocabulary that people won't know outside of specialized training. Exactly. So you have... You have done very serious and and often technical scholarship, but I think you have you have really helped the rising generation and generations to come by writing clearly, by laboring to write clearly, as you say, um, by never dumbing down your content or your thinking. Uh, your sentences are strong and declarative in many cases, and and lead us to conclusions, which I I think again is a model for theologians. Uh, you, you also reason directly from the text. You seem to have a very strong confidence in the Bible, all the Bible, the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old, to speak to uh, our situation and our doctrine today. Um, you 
obviously reverence the tradition, I think, and find yourself in it, but you you do not lean more heavily on the tradition than you do the Bible. And that itself is interesting today because there's been something of a push, as you well know, uh, to, to almost revivify the tradition such that the tradition can even loom larger than Scripture today. Yes, I'm trying to keep Scripture central, and um, I quote the words of Scripture often because in the Systematic Theology book and in this new book, Christian Ethics, I'm convinced that it is the words of the Bible that are powerful, more powerful than my own merely human words, and uh, the words of the Bible that will change people's minds and hearts. Oh, and if I could say one other thing. Sure. Um, if, you, if you open to any page in Systematic Theology or in this new book, Christian Ethics, I just now randomly opened, and it came to page 446. Um, at the top of the page, it will say, Chapter 16, Civil Government. Now, I had to work with the publisher to get them to agree with the chapter number, along with the chapter title, at the top of the page, because I wanted people to know where they were in the book. Mm-hmm. Second, there's a bold-faced section heading that says, Number two, inwardly transformed people are necessary for a transformed society. So now I know that I'm in the middle of a section, so I go back. The number two makes me go back, number one, and now I see large heading, capital G, government cannot save people or fundamentally change human hearts. So now the numbers that the publishers often will omit from section headings and then uh, the letter heading, so capital letter G, section Mm -hmm. one, personal salvation is the work of God, not government. Section number two, inwardly transformed people are necessary for a transformed society. So those bold-faced section headings are very important, and I'm I'm differing with the normal process of publishers where they don't put outline points, letters A, B, C, D, numbers one, two, three, then under that small a, small b, small c, hmm. under that small paren one, small paren two, small paren three. Um, but I want readers to see at what level they are in the argument and where they are in the argument, and the section letter heading and number heading does that so that you open to any page in the book, you know, immediately I'll do this again. Okay, now I just randomly went to 683, chapter 27, alcohol and drugs, I know where I am. Mm-hmm. Section heading D, other passages in scripture, view alcoholic beverages more po- more positively. I know where I am in the argument. I'm the fourth major point in the argument because it's section heading D. So um, that, I'm just trying to help the reader. Yes. Always be oriented in where I, I am in the larger argument. Well, I really appreciate that, that attention to care. Um, I remember uh, reading about Cornelius Van Til as a theologian, and someone asked him why he did theology in general, why he worked as a, as a theologian. And uh, paraphrasing, he said, to protect Christ's little lambs. <laughs> and I was yeah. taken aback yeah. by that, by those words from Van Til, because here's this, you know, this theologian slash philosopher that we revere, right. uh, whether you agree with him on every point, you know, he's a brilliant man, but his brilliance yeah. did not detract from his care for the sheep. And I, I see a similar yeah. concern yeah. in you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Wayne, for being on this podcast and for talking with us about Christian ethics. There's many things I could say about you to try and honor you. I think that probably the best thing I can say as I'm working through this book myself is that it honors the Word of God and it lifts it up, and that is uh, that is what your ministry in general has done. So thank you for that. Thank you, Owen. Thank you so much. It's so good to talk to you, and uh, I hope we get to see each other again sometime soon. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest-growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu mdiv today.